KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Income inequality is a huge problem we are facing as an American society, really a global society. And a new report from the group Oxfam shows that for the first time, inequality has grown everywhere during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we wanted to dig into Oxfam's report titled The Inequality Virus. So we caught up with Paul O'Brien. He is the vice president at Oxfam America on policy and advocacy work. He's also the author of a book called Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality. This is an important conversation. Check it out. So tell me about the Oxfam Inequality Report. Is this something the organization produces on a yearly or regular basis, or was this something pursued because of the extraordinary conditions brought on by the pandemic? Uh, Both. Um, So each year in late January, uh, during Davos, which is this gathering of fur coats and private planes that lands in Switzerland to talk about the world's problems, We tend to highlight the state of extreme inequality. We've been doing it for about 10 years now. And each year we've documented how great wealth disparities have gone. So we did it again this year. But obviously our big concern this year was how has inequality changed during the pandemic? And that was the focus of this year's uh, report. And they didn't all fly in together this year. So yay hey for the climate. (laughs) But they did get on. Uh, they did get on a virtual Zoom together and discuss these problems. And we thought it would be a good moment to let folks know how bad inequality has gotten. And to that point, looking at the report, it just extraordinary. It's not surprising when you take a second and think about it. But when you see it, like pretty much across the board, it's it's staggering. Yeah. Well, it was really bad going into uh, the pandemic. And essentially what we were arguing was that there was so much money and so few hands now that it wasn't just wealth that had gotten uh, overaccumulated in small places, but it was power. And so in a way, it's not surprising that once the pandemic hit, the richest amongst us were able to use the moment to garner even more wealth. So what was our big finding? It was essentially that the 10 richest people on the planet made enough money during the pandemic to vaccinate everybody on the planet Earth, if they chose to. You can sort of imagine them sitting around a table going, what do we do with all this extra wealth that we've made during the pandemic? Oh, I know. Let's make sure everybody everywhere gets a vaccine. Of course, the challenge with that is, one, that dinner conversation is never going to happen. And two, Our world is not going to be healthy while it is simply their choice as to whether they spend their money in that way or, you know, buy some extra toys or change the fate of a nation. What allowed this to happen specifically in the pandemic? I can understand how the bottom can fall more. People are losing their jobs, getting sick. They don't have access to health care. So but how are the wealthiest able to cash in to this extent? Yeah, well, I would love to talk about what's been going on for folks closer to the edge of crisis. We can maybe do that later. But essentially, the way our economy is structured now, a lot of that wealth now sits in the forms of stocks and shares and control of companies. And the stock market has done reasonably well and particularly well in certain sectors where some of the wealthiest, say the tech sector, uh, have their resources. Of the 
just to give you a sense of this, of the 2,200 billionaires that exist in the world, they collectively own in forms of stocks, shares, companies, offshore wealth, and so on, about $11.9 trillion between them. That is essentially, it's very hard to put that kind of money into scale. You know, the whole global economy, every single bit of production is about $80 uh, trillion. But the amount they have, almost $12 trillion, if you took every stimulus package and every investment by every government in the world to try and help their economy survive this pandemic, that's how much wealth they have, approximately. And this is just the world's billionaires. So they saw that money accumulate, essentially because we're not taxing it. A lot of it sits in offshore wealth that can't be gotten uh, to. Um, the levels of taxation on both wealth and corporate income is so low now, it's been dipping since the 70s, that once you're wealthy, it's very easy to grow your wealth. If you're in poverty and a crisis hits, and I'd love to say a little bit more of what we've seen around the world, um, then it's very hard to get yourself out of that crisis and move forward. And that's the problem that we see as an anti-poverty organization with this extreme inequality. And please go on, talk to us about the people in crisis and what you're seeing there. You know, And like I said, it makes logical sense, in a, specifically in a pandemic, how it's so yeah. easy to sink even deeper. Yeah, so, you know, we, as a, we're a humanitarian and anti-poverty organization. We work in 150 countries. Um, uh, well, actually, now we're real focused in about 100 countries where we really try to go deep. Um, uh, what we had been seeing prior to the pandemic was that about half of humanity were living on $5.50 a day. And we talked about it at that time in the last few years. Look, these folks are one catastrophe away, one crisis away from not being able to put one meal on the table for their kids, one health crisis away from losing a job and not being able to get any kind of insurance and so on and so forth. Um, and we were seeing it particularly for marginalized communities within countries, for women and for groups that were discriminated against in countries. So we were worried. We were trying to draw attention to the, the, the fact that over half of humanity uh, was right on the edge. And then the pandemic hit. And it hit, yes, of course, it, it has hit as a health emergency, although it hit first and worst in the North. Um, but it is now everywhere. And it is affecting uh, both economies and health systems in Africa, Latin America, and uh, South and East Asia. And what was what we are essentially seeing now is, you know, you have three quarters of the workers of the world don't have any form of social protection or unemployment insurance, and two billion of them lost jobs over the over the course of the pandemic. You have healthcare workers in most contexts, mostly women, mostly on the front lines of this, completely underprotected. In many of the urban slums where we uh, are working to address poverty issues, there's no possibility of social distancing or access to PPE, you know, masks and elsewhere. So folks have been locked down. They've lost their jobs. They're not able to move around, often because of increasingly oppressive governments. And uh, we're asking them to wait out this pandemic on essentially less and less income. It's an economic catastrophe for most communities. It's, it, our concern is that hunger will kill more people than health will around the world. Uh, our last report, we estimated it would be around 13,000 a day were going to be dying from hunger related to the pandemic. 
And yet we are still talking and thinking about this as primarily, uh, you know, it's all going to be fine once the latest and greatest vaccine gets into our communities. It just doesn't work that way. And you you alluded to this. This is a situation where you know, we talk about the divide and women getting hit harder than men and people of color getting hammered almost across the board. Across the board, across the world, and in the United States. Um, if you were, uh, if you're an African American or Latinx person in the United States, you're more likely to die from COVID than if you're a white person. If today we would have, uh, if they if they died at the same rate, we would have 22,000 more people alive today if all our communities had been affected affected equally. So essentially, it has been landing. It's not just in the United States. It's landing in ways that are racially disparate in Brazil and in other countries. And as you say, uh, women are being asked uh, to be on the front lines and are facing some of the frontline crises uh, that we are seeing around the world. Uh, Just a couple of facts for you there that have been particularly worrying for us. In the Middle East, 20% of women go out to work but they're uh, expected to account for 40% of pandemic job losses. And in Latin America, generally, the pandemic is pushing more people of African descent and indigenous people into poverty and could leave 71% of the indigenous populations in Mexico living on less than that $5.50 I talked about. So this really is, and we termed our report, the inequality virus. What happens when you face a a catastrophe is that it hits, but then people's ability to respond depends on the resources they have, how laws protect them, how society is set up to either favor or disfavor them. And what we're seeing is the pandemic pull us apart. As we see this, there are so many things to be concerned about from an individual standpoint, from a family standpoint, but aren't there concerns It seems to me as this inequality continues to rise, one of the biggest concerns would be civilized society gets so out of whack that it's no longer civilized society. You get more and more desperate people who have less and less to lose, and you could see some really bad things happen, no? Yes. So we were, let's just talk globally and then talk the United States, because we know this is happening everywhere. Uh, globally, we were really concerned right before the pandemic started in December of last year that we were seeing civil protests because of inequality and unfairness that were turning increasingly violent, less faith in the ballot box all around the world, whether it was rising metro fares in Chile, fuel prices in Haiti or Iraq and even Iran where they have oil, um, bread prices in Sudan. You remember the yellow jackets in France that were worried about taxes. People are frustrated that economic systems aren't working for them. They're feeling stuck and they're not waiting for the ballot box. In the United States, at least people were waiting for the ballot box in the last election. You saw people on the left and right really frustrated that the system wasn't working for them to deliver them a chance at the, uh, you know, what we call the American dream. What we saw is a lot of people on uh, what, you know, I would personally associate with, and this is what I wrote um, Power Switch about, progressives and moderates, uh, progressives from all identities coming together to to demand that policymakers don't just end the the bad parts of the Trump era, but deliver more equal policies in which people have a better chance to get health care, lift themselves out of poverty, 
and uh, re-strengthen the American dream. So uh, yes, I think you're right. I think ignoring inequality is at our peril both here in the United States and certainly will be around the world. And it's going to get worse before it gets better as the, the consequences of the pandemic land. To this point, one of the things specifically, and I don't study other countries, so I don't know about this mindset, but it's always been frustrating to me in our country, in the U.S., we are much more focused on the person who gets maybe benefits they don't deserve, who maybe games the system a little bit and gets extra food stamps or stuff like that, which is a very small percentage, but it dominates the discussion when it comes to social benefits, as opposed to being much more worried about everyone getting what they need. We're so focused on the possibility of, God forbid, somebody getting something they maybe don't deserve, as opposed to the vast amount of people who have to jump through hoops to get the little bit that's available. How do we change that mindset? Because I am guessing that's not an accident, that that's what our focus is. That's a really interesting observation. Um, it resonates for me. I I am an optimistic person, and I came away from this election cautiously optimistic. And the reason I was optimistic is that people in massive numbers showed up to say, what, what's happening now isn't working for me, and I want to see, through the ballot box, profound change. Why my optimism is caution, and I'm somebody who personally, even though Oxfam is nonpartisan, I, I vote uh, on the left side of the ledger. Uh, I wanted to see an administration committed to reducing economic inequality, greater taxes for corporations and on wealthy individuals. What makes my optimism cautious in light of your question is that it was never going to be enough to see a, a President Biden and Kamala Harris win the White House or a Senate that is now potentially capable of legislating ideas if they don't address what you're talking about and capture public imaginations with, with what is possible if we create a more fair system, then people will return to what you're talking about, which is frustration that others are getting stuff and it isn't working for me. We need leaders saying, okay, all we've got now is a starting gate to address what is fundamentally wrong with our economy. It is not okay that the minimum wage in the United States is so low, that so many people are still out of work, that you can't access universal health care in the richest country in the world, and that our education is comparatively getting worse and worse and worse. We want leaders to offer us solutions, and if they do and make progress in the next two years, we'll vote for them again. There is a potentially powerful moment for uh, politicians to step up. But if they rest on their laurels and think that the only thing they need to do is defeat the last guy, uh, then they're going to get a rude awakening in two years' time and four years' time. Most of this inequality we are talking about, I think we break it down of the inequality within countries. Has this pandemic, what has this done for the inequality between countries, between poor countries, rich countries, has it widened that chasm? Has it been, you know, moderate? How, how would you talk about that? It's worse. And let me, let me touch on something that I think your listeners will be watching carefully and interested in. Um, one of the causes of the chasms now is vaccine inequality. So in the rich north, in countries like the United States, Canada, some European countries, only some, we have access to potentially, if we could get the pharmaceutical companies to produce at what they can actually do, we have access to what looks like a pretty effective vaccine. 
um, in these cold storage mRNA vaccines. In most of the world, and the big concern now is that the other vaccine, which was viewed as more resilient and potentially capable of surviving where we didn't have high-tech stuff, uh, it looks like that is less effective against um, uh, the new strains of COVID. And so what you're seeing is a growing inequality in terms of economies that may be able to recover, get back to work, open up their stores and shops and lives, and countries that are going to be increasingly affected by uh, the fact that they can't get access to a quality vaccine yet, all because we cannot release the intellectual property rights of a few pharmaceutical companies and manufacture everything at scale. The, the problem with that, of course, that I think everybody realizes is that in the end of the day, it's not good for living in the United States in what might be seen like a, a, a moment of emerging from the pandemic if new variants all around the world are increasingly virulent. And they, because in, in, in the world of pandemics, there are no borders. In the end of the day, somebody will move and it will visit on us, which is why we have to think of inequality now in its health terms and its economic terms as a global problem that needs global solutions. When we talk of the big picture of making a more equal, a more just world, and I don't mean to put this in trite that there's a simple answer or a silver bullet that will fix this, but is the lead more on a political front, an economic front, or a moral front? That's a beautiful trifecta, and I'm afraid to say you need to win on all three. It's pretty simple at the fundamentals, at, at, at the core of it. We've been working off a, pre a pretty broken economic model with political backing. And that was essentially the growth is good, greed is good, we can continue to burn and grow and buy and shop our way through anything. Because as long as the economy was growing, as long as the pie was getting bigger, some little part of the pie would get to everybody and we'd be fine. And what folks are realizing, and it's showing up in politics, is that there's no point growing the pie indefinitely if the person who has the knife is slicing the part for everyone else, smaller and smaller, while a very small number of people are consuming most of the pie. We have got to get an economic model that is less about just growth is good to more effective sharing of opportunity and outcomes so that people can live with more dignity. That takes a political energy that we saw in this last election, and it needs leaders capable of making the simple moral argument that our world is broken when a very few people are able to survive this pandemic way richer than they were, and most of us are on the edge of crisis. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.